Today, you and I living in the West, are sort of, we're, we're generally sheltered from the worst excesses of power. You know, we live fairly safe lives and there is this thin veneer of peace and democracy and accountability. You know, you can't get away uh, uh, with most uh, real uh, horrendous acts of power uh, um, that we see. Um, but we do see uh, the marginalisation of our voice, you know, the, uh, what we can say and what we can stand up, up for uh, is often sort of shifted and our, our labour, um, if we're on minimum wage or whatever else, we can uh, uh, be exploited by the uh, uh, powers that be. But we're often in the West protected from the worst excesses of power. But people outside these, uh, what used to be called first world countries, they can uh, be more aware of the wretchedness of power and how evil uh, 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 the lust for it uh, can lead to. Uh, the vying for position and the corruption that come from it. I don't know if you guys have been keeping up with uh, uh, events in Haiti where uh, we support an orphanage, uh, the Mango Tree Orphans, and uh, uh, Haiti is, is just in a really sad state. You know, it has, uh, the president was uh, assassinated uh, recently um, and there are gangs roaming the streets uh, Christy, uh, our own contact down um, on the coast in the Brighton Ealing Church, uh, he won't, he's advised, been advised not to go to Haiti because uh, um, he will need an armed guard 24-7 to go there. You know, they're, they're looking for opportunities to rob and take hostage and destroy. And, and these are the daily experiences of these orphans in Haiti. And uh, they're just not protected from this lust for power that is just barraging that nation. And there are other places out there that knows the same grief of power, of the corruption and lust and uh, just the immorality of gaining it and keeping it. And we can sometimes forget it because we're sort of uh, uh, cosseted and uh, uh, putting cotton wool against it. And I want you to listen to um, the story uh, of Kengis Khan. It's written by this so Christian explorer um, who sort of walked from uh, uh, Mongolia to Hong Kong. Um, and he writes this, just to give you, um, give you an idea of what power looks like outside our sort of peaceful and democratic uh, United Kingdom. It says this, I still found it hard to believe the stories of Kengis's life and achievements were real. Even his childhood was the stuff of legend. He had been born with the name of Temujin about 800 years ago on the grassy steppes of northeast of Alambatar. At that time the Mongol people were a series of scattered competing nomadic tribes, hardy, wild, often fighting. And you think, oh that's my family experience on a Sunday morning. Uh, wild, hardy, and often fighting. Uh, uh, but it, it gets a lot worse. Temujin's father, an important chief, had died shortly after he was born. Uh, his mother was left destitute and had to fend and provide for the family herself. 
Temujin and his siblings grew up in a dangerous world, a world that humanity has faced for most of its existence. There was no shortage of sibling rivalry, and this rings true, doesn't it, in so many biblical stories. This escalated severely when at 13, Temujin got into an argument with his older half-brother about the rightful ownership of a lark and a minnow they had caught. Later that day, Temujin murdered his brother. Not long after this, he was kidnapped and held hostage by a neighbouring tribe. Um, you think the sort of Crawley-Horsham rivalry is something to behold. Well, uh, uh, they had nothing uh, on the Mongol hordes. Uh, so Timjin escaped, hiding in an icy river to avoid capture and befriending one of his former captors to make him uh, make it safely home. As he reached manhood, Timjin took up the leadership of his local tribe and after decades of fighting and politicking with other tribes, he united them all behind him. He now took the name Genghis Khan, ruler of all, and from this new position of authority marshaled the most loyal and well-coordinated force of nomads, that the world has ever seen, and a force they were indeed, for more than a century. Can you imagine a century? hundred years. They swept south like a perfect storm in their tens of thousands, destroying anyone who stood in their way. Impregnable cities fell. Armies ten or ten, twenty times bigger than them were routinely defeated. Under the leadership of Genghis Khan's sons and daughters, grandsons, the onslaught spread further and further from Korea to Indonesia, from Persia to Poland, all collapsed before them. The Mongols' victims in far-flung lands barely knew who or what had hit them. When Christendom first heard about an army on horseback smashing the Muslim people of the Middle East, they thought it was the legendary Christian king, Prester John, coming to their aid during the dreadful Crusades. But the Mongols then encroached into Europe, and when the Christian knights of Poland and Hungary said their prayers and went out to face the hawkback warriors, they fared no better. By day's end, their entire force had been destroyed, princes and bishops included. And I really want you to get this picture, uh, not of our current situation of sort of peace and uh, relative safety, but of the vulnerability of human life, of the power and the unparalleled power of warlords, of kings, of uh, people in charge. Can you hopefully get a sense of the vision and strength and brutality it takes to set up and govern an empire? This ruthlessness is nothing new. It existed long before Genghis Khan uh, and it has existed for as long as one person would have power over another. When we think of these things, these are the qualities that we need to assign to the king of Egypt in the time of Moses. This is what he was like. He was ruthless. He was brutal. Uh, he uh, was familiar with death and murder. Uh, and power was his own justification. He didn't answer to Amnesty International. If the U European Court of Human Rights came to him, he would just laugh in its face. He was unaccountable. 
Pharaoh did whatever it took to uh, solidify his power base, to increase his influence, to cause his kingdom to be on a hardier foot. Now imagine you are about to confront the king of Egypt, the ruler of this bloody empire, the ruler of this king who will stop at nothing to make sure his sons inherit his land. Imagine you are that shepherd, Moses, or his brother-in-law, Aaron. You're about to confront this bloody, unaccountable uh, atheist to all intents and purposes. Easy to be terrified, isn't it? Easy to suddenly be very wary of going anywhere near that. Suddenly you are aware and sensitive to their power. You are aware that they don't have any restraints on their actions. And it's now that we're going to move to that moment of confrontation. Moses and Aaron have just talked to the Israelites. They have convinced them of the power of God. They have shown them these miracles that God had for them. And they, these Hebrews had heard of the, the burning bush, of the, the empathy and sympathy of their father God and the marvellous signs of snakes and leprosy and blood. And so if you've got a Bible, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 5. Because while the Hebrews bowed down in worship because they knew what Moses and Aaron were talking about, this king of Egypt, this unaccountable bloody warlord, he has a different perspective. So turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. Moses and Aaron stride into the king of Egypt's halls. And they are confronted by possibly the most powerful man on the planet at that time. And it says this. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. And they said, and you can hear their voices rise. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And you can imagine Moses and Aaron feel in an impressed uh, uh, with their presence in the halls of the king. But this is Pharaoh's territory. He is lord of everything he sees. He is uh, unaccountable to anyone or anything. What he says is law. In fact, he was met, regarded by many as a god. And Pharaoh says this. Who is the lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Can you see the confidence and just the power, this arrogance of this king of Egypt uh, uh, that he has just got so used to? Listen to this. I wonder if you can uh, detect the change the note of defeat already in their voices. And then Moses and Aaron said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a free day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues or, or with the sword. 
And the king of Egypt said, he knows he's on a winner now. Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labour? Get back to your work. I'm going to finish there. And so Moses and Aaron come in to the halls of the king and they are uh, fearless. They've got a message from God. They are, uh, uh, they are uh, ambassadors for the high king of heaven and they, they, uh, and, and they bring about their uh, uh, statement with utter confidence that surely the king of Egypt will listen. But this is the most powerful man possibly in the world at the time. He was raised to be sceptical, to be selfish, uh, to uh, weigh up every decision. He understands that allowing these Israelites, however weak a nation they may be, he will look weak. People will look at him and say, oh, we can ask for our freedom too. He will look weak in the uh, eyes of his people. His power will be undermined. He will lose the free labour he has enjoyed. And so we find this pharaoh, this king of Egypt, oozing mockery in his reply. He sneers at the idea that these pathetic Israelites, with their lack of land, with their lack of power, with their lack of agency, that they've got anything to confront him with. They, how would they know any god that he has to pay attention to? His God has brought him conquest and victory and he has subjugated his enemies and he has built an empire that will last for generations. Who are Moses and Aaron? Who is their God to come against him? They have nothing and he has everything. And so the Egyptian says, Yahweh has no authority, no power. No influence, no significance here. It is pointless to raise his name. And Moses and Aaron are rather deflated. I think they thought, you know what, if we just speak loudly, Pharaoh will roll over. But he doesn't. And they virtually end up begging Pharaoh, just let us go. We were afraid of our God. He might attack us if we don't do what we say. They don't mention anything of the judgment that Pharaoh will face, of the signs and wonders that he will be confronted with. Aaron and Moses have been deflated by reality. They have come in with great ideas of spiritual warriorness and they have been uh, 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 pricked uh, by this Pharaoh and they are deflated. And so Pharaoh clearly has the upper hand in this confrontation and he presses his advantage because he knows what to do. He is a man that knows how to gain the upper hand. He is a man that knows what it is to win. He is a man that knows what it is to get what he wants at any cost. And so I can imagine him standing out of his throne, assuming his full height with all the robes of office around him. And he belittles these ridiculous prophets. Look how pathetic you look. Thinking Israelite, the Israelites can escape from the mighty, majestic, awe-inspiring Egyptian empire. They should be working, not 
uh, uh, messing about with religion. They should be building empire, not praying and having festivals in the desert. What sort of people are they? Originally, we were going to cover uh, uh, the whole of this chapter today because I really wanted to press on with the story. But there were two particular things that I really felt we had to stop and look at this morning. Firstly, is that there is this arrogance in humanity that says, I will only know God if he is an advantage to me. I only want to invite him into my life. I only want him to be part of it if somehow I benefit this God that you speak of, only if somehow he is useful to me will I make room. You know, I might let him have five minute prayer time in the morning. I might uh, uh, bung him a tenor uh, every now and again. It is really sad that it so often takes a disaster or a tragedy to get people to stop and recognise how powerless and insignificant these bags of bones are. It only takes, uh, it's so sad that it often takes uh, a catastrophe or a disaster or a death or a threat of death uh, for someone to stop and go, you know what, I need something more than this. There must be something more than just materialism. And that's why you find preachers often exaggerate and take out of context God's blessings. There's lots of talk of God's blessings and so preachers will use these to titillate those that listen. Preachers know that people and congregations, we're greedy for good luck. We're greedy for favour in all sorts of places. We want wealth. We want nice things. We want significance. We want success. And like any good con artist, preachers will uh, bring these blessings of God and say, God can be useful to you. If you pay him more attention, if you pray more and read your Bible, your children will grow up exactly how you think they should be. Uh, your houses uh, will not suffer subsidence. Your car will always pass its MOT. Uh, uh, your benefits will always be exactly what you want and you will get unassailed extra benefits if you pray more, if you read your Bible more, if you come to church more, if you spend more time with God. But that is not what God wants. It's not what he's after. Can you imagine any human relationship that existed like that? Knowing God is an end in itself. If there is a divine being who spoke everything into being, surely he is worth knowing. If he is making himself available to be known, surely it is best to come close to him than meddle around in acquiring stuff, in uh, uh, forging uh, uh, peculiar identities or getting busy with anything. Surely knowing God is the ultimate good in and of itself. Questions of how useful church, prayer and the Bible are to us should die on our lips. 
because we are invited into the best relationship we can ever have. We are invited in to know God as he is. We are invited to assume our eternal character because we were not made to just live and die for 70 years. We were made for eternity. And that is who God is and he invites us into that relationship. As always, James' brother, jo- uh, um, Jesus' brother James, uh, puts things in perspective. If you've got a Bible, look at James. It's this uh, great series of pithy statements that um, it's really good to reflect on. It says it's What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. It's just that evil of power and that back-to-frontness of thinking God is useful. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that, uh, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. And that is why scripture says God opposes the proud and shows favour to the humble. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. It's one of my favourite promises of scripture. Of all the words in our Bibles, come near to God and he will come near to you. Regardless of the state of your body, regardless of the state of your heart, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what will he do? Will he kick you in the teeth? Will he sit on your head? He will lift you up. And so there's an invitation. Don't think of God as useful. And second of my two points, there is a perception that faith and religion are somehow an inferior activity. Being still is closely aligned in our minds with laziness and apathy. How good are you at being still? People spend all day at work and sometimes all night as well in this 24-hour culture. And we spend our times between working, cooking and fixing and buying and being entertained. And so even our quiet hours outside of work are filled with activity. And when quiet moments emerge, we feel guilty if we're not up to something. There is something that we think of that needs to be done, so we might as well do it now. We remember the stuff that could wait, but we decide to get it out of the way. And so that we can have this elusive, quiet time another time. And we always push it back. How good are you at being quiet? 
And the sad thing is, it's even amongst spiritual leaders. How many of them seek to impress with their wisdom or their prayer life or their stillness or their austerity? Instead, even today, we have spiritual leaders. And when you ask them how they're doing, they talk about their work rate. They talk about all the different things they are up to. They talk about all the range of initiatives they have put into place. They talk about their energy. And you don't hear about their stillness and their quietness and the practice of their faith through rest and grace. It is so understandable that 21st century Christians imagine that God made a seventh day so that we could fit in that day all the stuff that we failed to get in the other six. That seventh day, and we're at liberty to choose when we do that, but that seventh day where we get all the housework done, all the things that we needed uh, uh, to do on the other six days, and we and we label on the seventh day as well. And the, the idea of a day of rest is uh, far from us. Or we make it a nonsense, like uh, uh, we make every activity permissible, that somehow we don't need a day of rest. But the Bible, right at the beginning, has that beautiful poem of six days' work and one day's rest, because we need a day where we don't do stuff. Now, I realise this might be a vestige of a bygone era, but I still get embarrassed when I meet a Christian in a shop on a Sunday. I'm embarrassed for myself, and I'm embarrassed for them. Can we not get even our shopping done in six days? Why does every day have to have an activity, have to not settle with what we have? So it's going to be great to see you all in the co-op later. Just let me say that clear. Surely we know that the Ten Commandments were words of wisdom that are still good to take on board today. Yeah. Keeping the Sabbath is valuable. And I think perhaps we've fudged it for too long. Can we not go at least a day without being busy? I want to close uh, with the words of possibly uh, my favourite pastor, um, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message. If he did just that and nothing else, uh, it would go down in the annals of my history at least. But he, he wrote a lot of good stuff as well. And um, I was like, oh, okay, I've got enough time. Um, I've rattled through the sermon in the hope that I could read a little bit of this. Um, so he's talking about a pastor, but I really think that we should all want to be um, godly men and women. I mean, the, the pastor perhaps knows more theology or teaching or has the uh, little collar around his neck. But he's not supposed to be the spiritual one while all the rest of us get on with our lives. It says this, In Herman Melville's Moby Dick, there is a turbulent scene in which a whaleboat scuds across a frothing ocean in pursuit of the great white whale. 
The sailors are labouring fiercely, every muscle taunt, all attention and energy concentrated on the task. The cosmic conflict between good and evil is joint. Chaotic sea and demonic sea monster versus the morally outraged man, Captain Ahab. In this boat, however, there is one man who does nothing. Doesn't hold an oar, he doesn't perspire, he doesn't shout. He is languid in the crash and the cursing. This man is the harpooner and he is quiet, poised and waiting. And then this sentence. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. Melville's sentence is a text to set along the psalmist one. Be still and know that I am God. And alongside Isaiah's, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust you shall be your strength. Pastors know there is something radically wrong with the world. We are also engaged in doing something about it. The stimulus of conscience, the memory of ancient outrage, the challenge of biblical command involve us all in the anarchic sea that is this world. The white whale, symbol of evil and the crippled captain, personification of violated righteousness. They are joined in battle. History is a novel of spiritual conflict. In such a world, noise is inevitable and energy is expended. But if there is no harpooner in the boat, there will be no proper finish to the chase. If the harpooner is exhausted, having abandoned his assignment and become an oarsman, he will not be ready and accurate when it's time to throw his javelin. Somehow it always seems more compelling to assume the work of the oarsman, labouring mightily in a moral cause, throwing our energy into a fray we know has immortal consequence. It always seems more dramatic to take on the outrage of a Captain Ahab. The metaphors Jesus used for the life of ministry are frequently images of the single, the small and the quiet. These have effects far in excess of their appearance. Salt, leaven, seed. Our culture publicises the ob opposite emphasis, the big, the multitudinous, the noisy. It is then a strategic necessity that pastors ally themselves with the quiet, poised harpooners and not leap frenzied to the, the oars. There is far more need that we develop the skills of the harpooner than the muscles of the oarsman. It is far more biblical to learn quietness and attentiveness before God than to be overtaken by flurry and worry. If I hadn't rattled through the sermon so quickly, we wouldn't have the chance to get this last bit of uh, reading. So uh, this from a little bit earlier. And uh, just ask yourself if you can hear your own experiences in this. I am busy because I am vain. I want to appear important, significant. What better way than to be busy? The incredible hours, the crowded schedule and the heavy demands of my time are proof to me and to all who notice that I am important. If I go to a doctor's office and find there's no one waiting and I see through a half-open door the doctor reading a book, I wonder if he's any good. A good doctor will have people lined up waiting to see him. A good doctor will not have time to read a book. 
Although I grumble about waiting my turn in a busy doctor's office, I'm impressed with his importance. Such experiences affect me. I live in a society in which crowded schedules, harassed conditions are evidence of importance. And so what do I do? I develop a crowded schedule and harassed conditions. When others notice, they acknowledge my significance and my vanity is fed. The next one, I like this one. I am busy because I am lazy. I let other people decide what I will do instead of deciding myself. I let, other, I let people who do not understand the work of the pastor to write the agenda for my day's work because I am too slipshod to write it myself. The pastor is a shadow figure in these people's minds, a marginalised person, vaguely connected with the matters of God and goodwill. Anything remotely religious or somehow well-intentioned can be properly assigned to the pastor. Because these assignments to pastoral service are made sincerely, I go along with them. It takes effort to refuse, and besides, there's always the danger that the refusal will be interpreted as a rebuff, a betrayal of religion, and a callous disregard to people in need. It was a favourite theme of C.S. Lewis, that only lazy people work hard. By lazily abdicating the essential work of deciding and directing, establishing values and goals, other people do it for us. If you are busy, it is your fault and you have failed to work out what's important. Other people set your goals and your routines. We find ourselves frantically, at the last minute, trying to satisfy half a dozen different demands on our time, none of which is essential to our calling, to stave off the disaster of disappointing someone else. But if I vainly crowd my day with activity or let others fill my day with their demands, I don't have time to do my actual work, the work to which I have been called. How can I lead people into the quiet place behind the, beside the still waters if I am in perpetual motion? How can I persuade a person to live by faith and not by works if I have to juggle my schedule constantly to make everything fit into place? Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we find two clear challenges of this small excerpt from Exodus. We find the temptation to treat you as useful is a terrible one. Lord God, I pray that you would help us long to know you and to rest our discipleship on that rather than anything that we will get or achieve or earn. Lord God, I pray that we will want to know you for the sake of knowing you. And secondly, Father, just think of this discipline of quietness as uh, we get richer, as we get more calls on our time, Lord God, as we are invited into new responsibilities. It's so easy to be lazy and let other people uh, decide what we should do. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us to be more lazy. Lord God, let us be less busy. Lord, let us be familiar with quietness. Let us be familiar with peace. Lord God, I pray that we would be good at not rushing because we've learned to value the right things. Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.